Good evening. It's very good to be with you. Can you hear me all right? This microphone? Yes, good. Uh, have that passage, Exodus 15, uh, open in front of you, whether, you, whether your Bible or your, uh, your program or your iPhone. I'll trust you if you're looking at your iPhone that that's what you're, <laughs> that's what you're looking at. Actually, I don't trust you, but nonetheless. Um, and before we go any further, let's bow our heads to pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for gathering us here this evening for these couple of days. We praise you for the tremendous privilege that it is for us to be able to do that uh, freely and openly. Uh, we thank you for one another, for those we know, for those we don't. We praise you that we are all one family. We're brothers and sisters in reality in the family of God. You have adopted us into your family and we thank you, Lord, that as we gather, you are here. And you are a God who speaks, and we thank you for your word, and it's life-changing power, and we pray that you would speak to us tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin by asking you what it is that makes you want to sing, and that's not a rhetorical, rhetorical question, what, what, what makes you want to sing, just in kind of broad terms, what makes you want to sing? Anyone? Happiness. Something good happens. Yes? Anything else? Celebrate. Celebration, happiness. I think those are probably the dominant things. So you could put that as one word. Joy. Joy makes us want to sing. Maybe supremely joy makes us want to sing. I think the other thing actually is misery. Is it not? Misery makes us want to sing. Uh, I heard on the radio this morning a little... Uh, a bit of uh, Anne Hathaway singing the part of Fontaine in Les Miserables from the film. She's up for an Oscar. Uh, Les Miserables, as some people call them. Uh, that's a classic example of, of uh, a song expressing misery. But supremely, it's joy. The Bible is full of songs. We are looking at four examples over uh, these days that we're together, from Exodus through to Revelation. Exodus 15, that we've got in front of us at the moment, is the very first song in the Bible. That is no accident. There is a good deal of uh, poetry before this. In fact, if you've got your Bible, just turn up to Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter, Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That perhaps lay, can lay claim to being the first poetry, poetic language in the Bible. There is music also. If you turn on to Genesis 4.21, we hear about the children of Lamech. And uh, verse 21, his, his brother's names, his brother's name, Jabal's brother's name, uh, was Jubal, he was the father of all who play the harp and flute. That, I think, is the first reference to music in Scripture. But we haven't had both poetry and music put together. The first reference to that, I reckon, is Genesis 31, verse 27. 31, verse 27, which is actually uh, a negative reference in the sense that this is the occasion when uh, Jacob flees from Laban, never mind if you can't remember the story, 
And uh, Laban, his father-in-law, who's trying to escape from, says to him, why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so that I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps? Right? So the point there is they know that songs go with joy, but this was an occasion when they did not have the opportunity for that. Sin stifles joy and singing. But when we get to Exodus 15, the first song in the Bible, there is this explosion of singing. Why is that? Verse 1 of chapter 15, then, and I'm not going to go any further than that just for the moment, then, in other words, this is in a context. What has been happening? Well, uh, this is just after the Exodus. So we know what the long-term context is. Let me remind you, we've had, we've had creation. We've had the fall, the entry of sin into the world through Adam and Eve. We've had the covenant promise that God is going to rescue his sinful creation, his sinful people in Genesis 12. We've had the expansion of the family of God, the beginnings of the fulfillment of that promise given to Abraham, very tentative. We've had the long years of bitter slavery of the people of God under the, uh, the lash of the Egyptian pharaoh. And then the immediate context here is the exodus itself, the rescue out of slavery. So we've had the call of Moses to be the one who leads, leads the people of God out of um, uh, the grasp of the Egyptians, the series of plagues, Pharaoh finally giving permission that God's people can go, and the escape. But then, just when they thought they had got out, the Egyptians have a change of mind. Chapter 14, verse 5, if you've got your Bibles, just glance at that, 14, 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. And I don't think he's thinking of the music group when he says that and uh, the, the gatherings on Sunday. He's talking about the slavery by which they made all the, all the bricks and all the rest of it. So he's regretting letting them go. And as a consequence, uh, the Egyptian army goes off in pursuit of the fleeing Israelites. You remember the story. But God intervenes and the wheels come off the Egyptian army, literally, and they end up all drowned. So 14, verse 23, the Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea during the last watch of the night. The Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. 
And the Israelites watched what God did to rescue them. Verse 29, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him. And Moses, and in Moses, his servant. They saw the great power the Lord displayed. Now just imagine for a moment what that whole experience must have been like. Imagine what it must have been. It's almost impossible for us to do this. But imagine what it must have been for them to go through those long, grinding, painful apparently hopeless years of slavery. No way out, no end, to the end, end, end in sight, no light at the end of the tunnel, apparently. But then they escape. And you can imagine the excitement and the, the joy, the surge of joy at that. But then it looks as if they're going to lose all that. And they begin to think, in fact, they were even better off in slavery than being hacked down by this... A powerful Egyptian army that was on their heels. And yet again, God breaks in and rescues them just when it looks as if they're not going to escape. And, and finally, they realize that they are utterly free, utterly free of the Egyptians. Imagine the awe and the joy coursing through those Israelites. Then, Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. Now, a couple of things to note. When your enemies have enslaved you and they won't let you go, your rescue requires the destruction of your enemies. There can be no salvation without judgment. They are two sides of the same coin. The only good evil is destroyed evil. We need to be absolutely pitiless towards evil and sin, not towards sinners. It's not flesh and blood who are our enemies, as Paul says. But we need to be pitiless towards evil. Tolerance towards sin and evil is not a good policy. So that's one thing for us that we we have to uh, remember. Salvation and judgment are two sides of the same coin. Another thing just to note, well, it's a question really. How do we read the Exodus? I reminded you of everything that went on. You know that story so well. How do we read the Exodus from a New Testament Perspective. We need to understand that if we're going to make the most of it ourselves. And we can get lots of help from the Old Testament and the New Testament in that. And I just want to point you to a couple of uh, <coughs> excuse me, brief passages. First of all, Isaiah 43, 16 to 19. Isaiah 43, 16 to 19. Have a look at that if you've got a Bible with you. Isaiah 43, 
16 to 19, which says this. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters. So this is a reference to the Exodus. Okay, This is the God of the Exodus that is speaking here. Who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. All right? So the, that story, we're being reminded of that story of the Exodus and everything that God did, that great act of redemption that God did. Verse 18. Forget the former things. Forget the Exodus. Forget what God did back then. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do not perceive it. I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. There will be a new act of redemption. The Lord is saying through Isaiah. That will so dwarf what God did at the Exodus, massive as that was, that you will hardly think about the Exodus again. And that's the situation we're in, isn't it? The Exodus is not a big deal to us because we live in the light of, of course, the great act of redemption which put the Exodus right into the shadow, which is the coming of Christ and the cross and the resurrection and that's all confirmed, what Isaiah says in the New Testament. For instance, one, little, one short example. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. And that comes direct from Jesus, if you like, via the Passover context of the Lord's Supper. So the Exodus is not only our history as God's people, but it is also a pattern of New Testament redemption in Christ. The same God rescued them and us. So, back to Exodus 15. Then, Moses and the Israelites sang this song in response to their salvation. Now, this was not the end of it for them. They had loads of battles still to come. But they had been through this tremendous experience of redemption, this, this crucial battle uh, that had liberated them from their slavery. So we can transpose what is said in Exodus 15 and use it as our song too, because it's a pattern of our redemption. Singing is fundamental to Christian experience, is it not? It's quite an interesting question to ask. It's a little bit speculative, I think, but it's an interesting question to ask whether God sings. I don't know whether you've thought about that. And I think if you're pushed for an answer, you have to say, yes, God sings. For one thing, music and singing is his idea. He created it. He tells us to engage in it. There's another interesting little example. Uh, Mark 14, 26. After the Lord's Supper, Jesus approaching his death on the cross. Mark 14, 26, when they had sung a hymn, Jesus and the disciples, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus was a singer in that sense. Jesus is God. As Jesus sung that hymn, it's a picture of God singing. 
Now, all of that is by way of introduction. Um, what about the lyrics of this, of this song? Now, here's another question, which is not rhetorical. I want an answer to this. What are the main elements of a modern song? Now, if you've looked at that sheet that I've given to you, I want you to hide it, right? You're not allowed to look at it just yet. But what are the main... Just, just tell me, what are some of the main elements of a, of a modern song? This is not a trick question. This is just all the basic things. What's in it? A chorus. Chorus. Splendid. Verse. Verse, yeah. So we've got verses, we've got choruses. What else? Uh, yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's music indeed. I'm more interested in the, in the, in the lyrics, really. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. But, so, but what else is there? Verses, choruses, what else have you got? Uh, obviously, you've got the, you've got the music. There, there are the, the other of it, so obvious that you can't, you're not even saying them, which is that there's, there's a beginning, there's the intro, there's the ending, right? And there's also often something stuck in the middle somewhere, which I have learned to call from my complete ignorance of these things, the bridge, right? There is a bridge as well. Now, have a look at that diagram, which I hope you've all got a copy of. Uh, this this coloured sort of mountain range, okay? They, they've, they've, if you haven't got one of those sheets, they, they kind of went from the front to the back, so there should be... If you haven't... Are you missing them at the back? Where are, the, are there some spare ones? Now, when I was doing a bit of research for this, I, I came across this uh, on, the, on the internet, actually in an article written by a guy who was, um, his, his profession is uh, editing music for dance pieces, as a matter of fact. So he was talking about how to do that uh, in, an, in an effective way. And he gives this, this example of a typical song structure. And as I looked at it, I suddenly thought, that, that's quite amazing, really, because I had been analysing Exodus 15, and my analysis of Exodus 15 is what you've got on the other sheet, the Hannah, which is why I gave you, well, I know you've already got this text, but you've got, you've got a second sheet with, with the, the text of Exodus 15, 1 to 18 on it, right? And I have broken it down into the beginning and the ending, and... What look amazingly to me like verses and choruses and even a bridge, okay? Now, so what you need to do is this. If you hold up your diagram that way and then you hold Exodus 15 against it like so, can you see it fits, right? Now, you may or may not be convinced about that. I am. I am convinced by that, all right? And um, so it's clear to me that Moses understood what makes a chart hit 3,500 years ago, okay? But seeing that helps us to get at the message of the song. Now, what is the function of a chorus? Somebody. It, it, it drives home, chiefly through repetition, the, the, the key theme of the song, the message that is trying to be communicated, or very often that is the case. What's the function of the bridge in a song? It emphasises the chorus. So it's kind of the emphasis of the emphasis, 
in a sense. All right. And to quote my, my music editor, uh, my new friend who I found on the internet, he, he says this, he said this, the bridge is often the most interesting part of the song and the emotional peak of intensity is often in the bridge. So I apologise to Miles and Dave for often wanting to cut the bridge from songs that we, that we sing at uh, JPC, always for, always for very good reasons. But the bridge is, if you like, the emphasis of the emphasis. Now just take a look at the main elements of the song, as, preferably as I've got it set out on the Exodus, that Exodus 15 handout, so you can see it. Uh, let's just, first of all, just look at the introduction and the, the ending, so that's verse 1b, as it were, and verse 18, which I've put in bold there. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The beginning and the ending, the Lord will reign forever and ever. That is getting our focus right. It is on the Lord. And even the parts of this song that are not directly sung to the Lord, as it were, are to the Lord. The Lord is the point of this whole thing. It is his glory, which is the ultimate aim of the song. The Israelites stood and watched what God did. And we stand before the cross by faith and full of wonder. So it starts with where God is in the intro there. He is on the throne, high on the throne. And then the song ends with what God is doing. He is actively reigning from that throne forever. What God has done in the Exodus is just the beginning of what he is going to do with his people. Then look at the verses. So this is... 1b to verse 5, okay, and uh, then verses 7 to 10. I'm calling those the two verses. And you can see that they have the same shape, and they are salvation and judgment sandwiches, okay, each of those verses. And the bread and butter, the top and bottom of each of those verses, is the destruction of Pharaoh's army. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea, Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. And then in the second verse, same thing, beginning and end, the bread and butter either side of the sandwich. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. And then verse 10, but you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. That all is basically the same stuff. The horse and its riding has hurled into the sea. Now, this is not vindictive. It is vindication. This destruction is their salvation. What are our enemies? As we transpose this into our own New Testament post-Christ experience, our enemies are Satan and sin and death. Satan means adversary. 1 Peter 5, 8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And anyone who has seen Satan at work devouring someone or attempting to devour someone longs for the day of his destruction. 
Sin is the enemy within, waging war, Paul says, against us. Romans 7.24, who will rescue me? Jesus is the one who rescues us from that enemy. So, Colossians 3.5, put to death, destroy whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And death itself is our enemy. 1 Corinthians 15.26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we can celebrate and rejoice in the destruction of our enemies. And you see in the middle of those sandwiches, the fillings are different, but they contrast in a glorious way. So the filling of that first verse sandwich is God himself. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his Name. Note the way that that response is individual, my, 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 but it's in the context of the corporate. This is the Israelites together singing this song. And also there is this sense of history, my God and my Father's God as well. The same covenant promises we live under through the generations. So it's right that our music reflects those three dimensions of the individual and the corporate and the history that we're a part of the second verse the filling of the second verse is uh, this depiction of the enemies of God verse 9 the enemy boasted I will pursue I will overtake them I will divide the spoils I will gorge myself on them I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them there is the the ironic arrogance of the pride that came before the fall you can hear the sneers of Satan in that description of God's enemies before their own destruction. Then what about the choruses? Now the choruses are what I've, what I've put in italics there. And they, there's development, so it's not exactly the same. But the basic theme of those choruses is there. That repetition that we talked about is there. The verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. Verse 11, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand. There's God's right hand again. And the earth swallowed them. And then there's that extended chorus from verse uh, 14 down to 17, sort of Coldplay style, long chorus over and over again uh, at the end. But you see there also in verse 16, by the power of your arm. There's the right hand again. Uh, They will be as still as a stone. Uh, Some of you have heard this, but let me just briefly tell you a little story about uh, a boy who was in Sunday school, and they were taught in Sunday school to see if they could go home and try and be like God. They needed to try and be like God. So he went home, and his mother suddenly realized that though he was a right-handed boy, uh, he was doing everything left-handed. And she said, well, what's going on here, son? Uh, and he said, well, we were told in Sunday school to, to try and be like God. And she said, well, that's really, that's great. Why, why are you doing everything right-hand, left-handed? And he said, well, God must be left-handed because Jesus sits on his right hand. <laughs> of course, we're not talking literally when we, when we speak of the right hand of God. We're talking about his majestic, victorious, invincible power. In New Testament terms, what we might say his resurrection power. That, in the choruses, is the heart 
of the song, glorifying God, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. And note the development that there is also in those, there's that repetition, there's also development. So the first verse speaks of the past, the, se- uh, the, the first chorus rather speaks of the past. The second chorus, 11 and 12, speaks of uh, what God is like now, speaks of the present. And then that extended final chorus, 14 to 17, talks about what God is going to do, having redeemed them, what God is going to do in the future, taking them into the promised land. The past, the cross and the resurrection, gives us confident faith in God's majestic power to destroy Satan and sin and death. So we can trust him in the midst of present challenges and we can have a sure hope for the future. Don't know what your present challenges are, but you can look back to the cross and the resurrection and know that your future is secure and God is actively reigning today to bring you through whatever those challenges are. And there's that beautiful final extended chorus which makes clear that all of our enemies are going to melt away and God will lead us into the promised land and plant us on his holy mountain. That is our hope in Christ. So then finally, the bridge, verse 13. The emphasis of the emphasis, which pulls it all together. In your unfailing love, You will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Unfailing love is that covenant faithfulness of God. God keeps his promises of love to us. And that bridge you can read really straight across from that event three and a half thousand years ago straight into our New Testament lives today. And I just want to end by all of us joining together in saying that bridge verse, that summary of the summaries in verse 13 together. So let's do that. Let's read verse 13 together. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Praise you, Lord. Amen.